Well, good morning. It is a great joy to see you all again and to be with you for a fourth Sunday. It's not a joy that Brian cannot be with us, but um, it, it is a joy nonetheless to be here and have the privilege of teaching you. And it is a very much a great privilege. I don't teach regularly. I teach occasionally. And to get repetition uh, like this is a great privilege and a great joy. So thank you. Let me try to launch my slideshow again so you get to see more than my <laughs> home screen. There it is. We're going to continue on in the text that we've been reviewing together from 1 Peter. In part four of this particular series. And the morning sermon is entitled, The One Who Desires Life Must. And if you were listening to the reading of the word, uh, this is in Psalm 34, and we're going to talk about it when we get to verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 3. The one who desires life must what? The one who desires life must what? And as we prepare for the word together, I'm going to ask that you stand one more time, and we're going to read this corporately out loud together. I'm going to have it on the screen. I'm preaching from the New American Standard, which maybe isn't common for you as much as it is for me. So we'll read off the screen to keep us uniform in our phrases. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 18. As we stand in respect of the word, let's read this portion of God's word together. Here we go. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the immense privilege of being together on the first day of the week as we every week celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Christ. And as we dive into 1 Peter 3 again this morning, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts control centers that understand and respond. Please keep us faithful to the scriptures. May no error or non-truths come forth this morning. Thank you for guarding and protecting your word and for allowing us to learn and grow together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was going to do a rapid review with you from the last three weeks 
Um, but God bless Jeremy, he, he reviewed in his prayer. Everything that he prayed has been our highlight, so I'm going to blow through these slides because we're not going to take the time. I'm going to take a moment to review our house rule <laughs> that we talked about last week. Some of the things that are taught to us in the Word of God are hard to receive. And then some of them, I think, are easier to receive, maybe easier to understand, harder to apply. And we have a tendency as humans to, to excuse ourselves from obedience. And, and the phrase that we used last week was the phrase, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. I know that's true, but. I, I know that's the re- correct thing to do, but, 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 but. So leave your yeah, but in the car and throw it out on your drive home. So as the word of God, past weeks, current weeks, future weeks, convicts us, challenges us, pinpoints areas of our lives that must be changed, must be grown, we want to leave our yeah buts in the car and let them go. Last week, here's where we ended. We were discussing the picture, the example of Christ going to the cross sacrificially, going to the cross willingly, going to the cross as the ultimate servant leader. And 1 Peter 3 starts by saying to the wives that in the same way as Jesus, in the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father's plan, in the same way that Jesus laid aside his own desires from a human perspective, his desires, he told the Father in the garden, if there's any other way but not My will, but yours be done. In that same way, wives, submit yourselves unto the Lord to your husbands. And in the same way, in the same kind of love, in the same kind of affection that Christ displayed to his people, to the church, husbands, in the same way, display this Jesus love to your bride. And in that context, I wanted to give a final call or a final word to us as husbands this morning before we move to verse number 8. We discussed last week living with our wives in an understanding way. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3.8 says, I'm sorry, 3.7 says, Live with our wives in an understanding way. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Being a husband for all time at all places in history has been hard, as is being a wife. Being the head of a home is not for the faint of heart. Our cockeyed culture spins authority and submission completely on its head. And as we biblically come to an understanding of what biblical authority is in the home, husbands over wives, we would come as we grapple with the truth, grip, um, grapple with the truth, we would come to an understanding that says, if properly understood, headship and submission, there's no wife that would ultimately want to be in charge. And here's why. Gentlemen, when Jesus, in a figurative sense, has a problem with your home, and he comes and visits your home, and he knocks on the door of your home, husbands, what if your wife answers the door? This is just a word picture. What if your wife answers the door? Jesus has a problem with our homes, gentlemen, and the wife answers the door. Who does Jesus speak to first? Shout it out to me. Who does Jesus speak to first? Does Jesus have a problem with our wives? Are they perfect, flawless people? No, they're not. Okay, so Jesus, obviously, when it comes to him child training us as his kids, he's going to have a problem with my wife. He's going to have a problem with your wife because our wives are saved by grace through faith, but are yet striving in, in, in the realm of sanctification, and they're not perfect, okay? But headship means when Jesus Christ comes to the door of your home, gentlemen, and your wife answers the door, he says to her, hello, my daughter, is the man of the house home? I hope that sits on you heavy. This is the essence of what headship is. When the God of the universe 
does business with our homes, he comes to the men of the homes. And we're able to offer our wives shade and protection, not, not from God's wrath, not from God's punishment, but because we as men are called to be the head of our homes. Same thing for the children. Is, is Jesus Christ going to have issue in a, in a training sense with our children? Absolutely. He comes to the dads of the house, comes to the husbands, the head of the home. This is the essence of what headship is. With great responsibility comes great accountability. With great privilege comes great responsibility, great accountability. Is being the head of the home a great privilege? Absolutely. Is it a calling that God has placed on every married man in this room? Absolutely. Um, it's a high, holy, hard calling. I want to give you four stabilizing basics this morning. We've already reviewed a lot of things that are hard to obey. Just the realms of delegated authority are hard to obey. Our sin nature is we're born as we've reviewed in the last couple of weeks. We're born as as self-serving, self-worshipping sinners who resist all forms of authority outside of our own selves. So when the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word of God and says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, those aren't easy commands. When the Word of God comes to the wives, when the Word of God comes to the husbands, when the Word of God comes to the children, and we're going to get lots more of it this morning, here's four stabilizing basics. With the command of the word of God, with the command always comes the enablement. And we, we see this cover to cover from the word of God. With the command always comes the enablement. Grab hold of that. Meaning, if the Lord of the universe tells you to do something, he will enable you to do something, even if it's impossible. All the commands given to followers of Jesus are dependent on being followers of Jesus. This is why a pr proper understanding of the gospel always marries justification and sanctification and glorification as one salvation package. We're going to get to that in the, in, the main, in, the, in the fourth point. But the only way you have the capacity to obey the commands of the word of God is if you are truly a follower of Jesus, if you've truly been rescued by the blood of Christ. So there's no enablement for a sinner striving in their own strength to get right with God through their works. There's no enablement. You must be a follower of Christ, a Christian. Obedience, thirdly, obedience following Jesus is about direction, not perfection. This isn't huge. Following Christ is always about direction, not perfection. We will not be perfected this side of death. We know that to be the case. Being a follower of Christ is about direction, trajectory of your life, not arriving at some perfect level. And fourthly, justification is real. Sanctification is real. Glorification is real. And those three can't be separated. And here's what I mean. The word of God tells us that he who has begun a work in you will do what? Per, per, bring it to perfection, complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. So we affirm a very high view of God who rescues us, as we've reviewed, who gives us a new identity, who transforms us, who creates us new creatures in Jesus Christ. And that same God who has justified us is the same God who is in the process of sanctifying us and is the same God who will glorify us. And the Bible uses those terms as one package of salvation. They can't be divorced. They can't be separated. You don't get justified, miss sanctification, then get glorified at death. It doesn't happen. And that's why the word of God comes to us in wave after wave and tells us things like, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, and, and other such phrases. And we know clearly from the word of God that what we do, our journey of sanctification, doesn't save us. It is very much a result of our justification. It's a result of being rescued by Christ. With the command comes the enablement. 
All the commands given to followers of Jesus are dependent on being a follower of Christ. Obedience is about direction, not perfection. Justification is real. Sanctification is real. Glorification is real. Those three can't be separated. Now, turn with me. James chapter 1. I do not have this on the screen. James chapter 1. This is going to be a companion transition text between 1 Peter 3.7 and 1 Peter 3.8. James 1 starting in verse number 19. James 1, 19 through 26. This you know, my beloved brethren, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Remember, gentlemen, we discussed that last week. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility... Receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, which is another way of saying get rid of your yeah buts. Walk in the truth, obey the truth. For if anyone, verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And hold on to that last portion of that text. We'll get there in a minute. It's a beautiful companion text speaking about the anger of man not working the righteousness of God as we discussed last week. Our anger flows out of almost always, flows out of self-centered hearts and must be put away as we put on love and humility and grace. And here we are to our text. Peter just finishes addressing the husbands. Remember, he has addressed, when it comes to realms of delegated authority, he has addressed citizens' relationship to governments. As Jeremy mentioned in his prayer, he's He's, meant, he's talked about, Peter has talked about um, slaves and masters in, in our context, at least partially applicable to employees, employers. He's talked about wives submitting to husbands. He's talked about this realm of, of a husband understanding, living with his wife in this understanding way. And now he's going to come back to the entirety of the church. And he says this, to sum up, So to encapsulate what's been discussed, all of you, every last one of you, be harmonious. Five things, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now, the reason why I emphasize that with the command comes the enablement is because what we have often in the New Testament is you just have wave after wave of commands when stacked upon themselves especially, are overwhelming. And with the command, Father God gives us the enablement. Harmonious, meaning to be of of one mind. All of you be of one mind. All of you be sympathetic, suffering or feeling the like with another. Sympathetic. All of you be brotherly. This is, this is the, the, the kind of love related to 
where we get the uh, English city name of Philadelphia, a brother love. All of you have brother love for one another. All of you be kind-hearted. And the same Greek word is used in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. There it is. Kind-hearted. And all of you, all of you be humble in spirit. Again, this Greek word is used in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. There's our word, humble in spirit. Humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And the overarching theme of these five things is that of unity. And I think the primary application is related to the body of Christ within the church of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to the elect exiles those dispersed ones who are dispersed across the lands. They are meeting in, in, in church functions, even though they're dispersed. All of you, church, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And as I put in italics at the bottom, how easily can we pick a fight with this kind of person? Right? Pretty hard. Jesus comes to us, and he speaks to us, through the Apostle Paul, Peter, through this Holy Spirit, towards kindness and unity. Regarding one another as more important than ourselves. And remember, this is going to blast us right back to even the phrase that Peter used earlier when he calls all believers in Jesus bondservants, right? What does a bondservant do? It's, it's, he serves Guarding one another is more important than yourselves. And then Peter keeps going. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, let's talk about our natural inclination as humans. Returning evil for evil, returning insult for insult. When we are insulted, what is our natural inclination? To insult back, right? When we are recipients of evil, our natural inclination is to do what? Okay. So Peter, again, he's coming to the people of God. And he's saying in wave after wave, over and over and over again in 1 Peter, this is not who you are anymore. And of course, the church, even prior to the day of Pentecost, had this over and over again, because Christ taught these principles in complete clarity. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Peter's saying the same thing. Instead of returning evil for evil, which is our natural inclination as fallen humans, instead of returning insult for insult, we are to give a blessing instead. For we are in fact called for this very purpose that we might inherit a blessing. And think, think Christ and think Stephen. It's particularly focus upon Stephen here. He's literally being killed by stones from a mob of evil, wicked men. He's receiving wickedness at its ultimate form. And he sees Christ at the right hand of the Father. And he prays, do not hold this sin against their account. Right? And we see Stephen in a very powerful, pointed way, blessing his persecutors in his greatest hour of persecution. Not returning evil for insult, evil, not returning insult for insult, giving a blessing. We were even reviewed this as we started this series. 
Jesus told Pilate, my, my kingdom's not of this earth. If my kingdom were of this earth, my people would be fighting right now. Remember what Peter, Peter tried to fight in the garden. You remember this? What did Jesus tell him to do? Put your sword away. Jesus said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. That actually might have been Proverbs, I'm sorry. Anyway, the word of God tells us that. Powerful. So we have these five elements from verse number eight, which are all elements of unity. And then the follow-up in verse number nine are all basics of unity also, giving blessings in exchange for evil or insults. Listen to this. John MacArthur says, A person to whom God has given undeserved blessings instead of judgment should seek the blessing he will receive when giving a free gift of forgiveness to someone who has wronged him. A person who has received God's undeserved blessings instead of judgment which is a condition that all Christians are experiencing, should seek the blessing he will receive when giving a free gift of forgiveness to someone who has wronged him. We're called to forgive, to give a blessing for wrongs suffered so that we would, in fact, receive a blessing. So we can think about this application to this text being out there in the world, receiving wickedness, receiving insult for our faith in Christ. But in a lesser degree, we can also experience some of these situations from within, can't we? Now, you might not go up to your brother after church today and deliberately try to be evil and wicked. You may deliberately not try to insult, but you, you may, right? And that's why verse number 8 is so important. We're living in harmony with sympathy and brotherly love, with kind hearts, with a humble spirit. Because bottom line, end of the day, the more we're together, the more we're going to do what to one another? We're going to sin against each other. Now, we're also going to grow with one another. And if you will find from your closest relationships in life, this is why, let me back up, this is why covenant keeping in marriage is so beautiful. Because a husband and wife can legitimately sin against one another and receive grace from one another, just like Christ gives us grace, and can grow stronger, not farther apart, because of the gospel in our lives. Right? We are a group of flawed, broken people. The point is that we're, we're not trying to be perfect so we don't offend you. The point is that we have God's grace available to us so that when I do, either intentionally or unintentionally, offend you or you to me, we can live with harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly love, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, forgiveness with one another, which is the display, again, of the great work of Christ in our lives. Because Jesus tells us it's more, it's, it's, it's a great privilege, it's a great blessing, gives us the example of forgiveness, forgiving others. Verse number 10 through 12. There's much in here as well. Peter quotes from Psalm 34, which we read this morning. The one, he says, the one who desires life. Now again, he's just been speaking, let's back up, he's just been speaking about receiving a blessing. You're called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. He says, for the one who desires life, to love and see good days must, and we'll stop right there. Now, now let's think about this for a minute. We're speaking about God's version of blessing. God's version of blessing. We ultimately know that the greatest blessing that we've received as followers of Christ is to become sons and daughters of God himself. To become part of the family of God. And in that process, 
The Father doesn't just rescue us, he makes us his sons, and we receive him as our greatest treasure, right? He is our Father, we worship him alone. So in that context of blessing, Peter, quoting Psalm 34, says, the one who desires life, and and who doesn't? Who doesn't desire life? To love and see good days. Who doesn't want to love and see good days? I'll tell you, this is the goal of every human being on the planet. Desires life to love and see good days. Must. Now look at this, because this is obviously countercultural. Must keep his tongue from evil. And keep his lips from speaking deceit. I'm not going to be able to remember it off memory, but this is where we ended in James when we read James as a companion text. Let me get back there. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. James chapter 3 elaborates more on this. And I think the psalmist goes here because our mouths, as James 3 tells us, are the most challenging thing to get a hold of when it comes to our sin nature. And we also know that we speak from what fills our hearts or what fills our control centers, what drives our lives. It always shows up in our speech. So speaking of blessing... The psalmist and Peter say the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, guarding what we say. He must turn away, verse 11, turn away from evil and instead replace that evil with good. He must seek peace and pursue it. He must seek peace and pursue. Pursue it. That word pursuit, listen to this. This is the same word that Jesus spoke to Paul in Acts 9.4. Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the word right there. Persecuting me. Pursuing me. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We must turn away from evil. We must do good. We must seek peace. And we must pursue it just like Paul was pursuing the believers. For all the wrong reasons, right? Until Jesus Christ (laughs) said, that's it. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. The Greek word is dioko. Follow hard after it. And then listen to this sweet encouragement. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, what is the psalmist saying? And Peter repeating. Is he saying that our speech, clean speech, turning from evil, doing good, seeking peace, pursue it, is going to be our means of attaining favor with God? Is that what he's saying? It's not what he's saying. Right? Other portions of the word of God are going to give this to us clearly. So we know that the one who desires life to love and see good days, if the requirement is to keep your tongue from evil and the requirement is to keep your lips from speaking to deceit, I'm sorry about your, my, the requirement for me is I must turn away from evil, I must do good, I must seek peace and pursue it. Again, we're going to smash right into the law of the word of God, which says, as human beings, we cannot fulfill that. I mean, we could speak nicely for the morning. I don't know if we could catch morning and afternoon. Maybe we catch the whole workday, right? 6 to 8 p.m., I don't know, trying to get the kids to bed. 
right? So the word of God lifts up this standard, this bar that always compels human beings to say, we cannot keep the law. In fact, James tells us that. If you keep the whole law and, and, and fail on one point, you're, you're guilty of everything. And that's why this text, along with text after text of the word of God, lifts Jesus Christ. And we're going to close here at the end of our sermon. Jesus Christ is our sufficient rescuer who rescues us from ourselves, who clothes us in his righteousness so that we can come to the word of God, receive these kind of commands, and with the command for someone clothed in the righteousness of Jesus comes the enablement to obey the command as a life direction, not as a life perfection. Now, the encouragement from verse 12. Look at this. Righteous, a righteous person is somebody who's had their sins removed and covered and paid for on the cross of Christ. The eyes of the Lord are toward that person. This is going to dovetail right with chapter 2, this chosen generation, this royal priesthood, this holy people. And here the psalmist says God's God's eyes are looking towards his people, the righteous and his ears are tending, are actively listening to their prayers. Oh, what a sweet encouragement. You want to talk about blessings, being in Christ and having the God of the universe attentive to your needs, attentive to my needs. His eyes, we know this is, this is speaking about Almighty God, he's spirit, right? This is a figurative Help us understand. But his whole attitude, his whole disposition towards his children is that of like someone's eyes being focused, someone's ears being attentive. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful description of being blessed. A blessed condition if God's eyes and his ears are open to you. And of course, the opposite, but the face, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, that doesn't mean you you make one mistake after you're a follower of Christ and did evil, and therefore God's face is against you. That's not it at all. This is speaking of who you are. If you, in and of your core, are an evil person, which basically means you're not submitting to God and his ways, living your own life in your own way, for your own purposes. God's face is against, against you. Horrific, terrifying. Now, let's move for a second in a little parentheses from this realm of blessing as it comes to individual believers being blessed because of our relationship to Christ. And let's talk about a phrase that I hear get chucked around. Here it is. God bless America. Now, I want to just unpack this. This is a parenthesis in the sermon. This isn't the main part of the sermon because I think Peter's mainly talking about personal blessing, not governmental blessing. However, I think implications still exist. So shout at me, question and answer time. When a typical person says, God bless America, what do they mean? I can't hear you. Shout it out. Protection, spiritually or physically? Both, okay. Freedom. On God's, God's kind of freedom or our kind of freedom? I know we're talking in general. I'm painting a broad brush. All right, you're doing great. God bless America. What what does a typical person mean when they say that? Prosperity is huge. Prosperity and safety. Okay? So God's going to bless America by keeping the Chinese in their own country or whatever. Name your country. Iran, whatever. No nuclear bombs. And I'm not wishing for those things in any sense. 
God's going to bless America by keeping the American dream alive and well. Okay? Now, the American dream is, I'm sorry, loved ones, it's right out of the pit of hell. Now, that doesn't mean if the Lord allows you to have a nice job, nice wife, nice life, nice car, okay, that's, that's, that's great. But our, our culture lives for that. That's all they live for. That's all they have. The best of the best of the best is the nice house and the nice car. And, the, and of course, it never satisfies. That's why they get rid of the nice car and get another nice car, right? And they get rid of the nice wife and get another nice wife, right? God bless America. So here's, here's my concern. Back to our text. Look at this. The one who desires life to love and see good days must. It doesn't say, vote your conscience. It, it doesn't say, you know, slam wickedness on social media. It doesn't say, carry a poster board around your neighborhood. Wear, put a bumper sticker on your car, right? Most Americans are not thinking, turning away from evil keeping your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit, doing good, seeking peace, and pursue it. That's not on the radar. So as we discussed, maybe in this first or second sermon, we're watching a trajectory in our country right now that's Romans 1, 18 through 32, crystal clear. And what it is, is it's the judgment of Almighty God whose restraint is being pulled back. The face of the Lord, it'd definitely be a parallel to that, being pulled back, restraining influence of Almighty God nationally being pulled back, and our nation is running full force headlong into its own devices and its own wickedness. And when God pulls back, Romans 1 tells us, the first thing that happens is a sexual revolution, 1960s, and the second thing that happens is a homosexual revolution. We're living it. We're living in the judgment of God. So when somebody says, God bless America, I kind of go, like, ugh. I mean, if you mean make America repent so they can receive the blessings of God. Okay. But if it's just this willy-nilly, like, we, we want a better government or we want more stability or we don't want the economy to crash, right? God's ways are so much different. So there's my parentheses. Hopefully that was helpful, not confusing. God bless America. We must be cautious because God's blessings, as this text tells us, again, this is mainly about individuals, not nations, but God's blessings are going to come by turning from wickedness. And our, the whole trajectory of our country is anything but that. Verse 13. Now remember, verse 8 and 9, Peter's compelling us to live our lives in this unity mindset that's returning good for evil, that's giving a blessing when we receive a curse. Like Stephen, Father, forgive them as he's being killed by them. And with that can come fear. With those commands can come fear. Wait, right? I'm supposed to turn the other cheek like all the time? Personally, again, it's not talking to nations, but personally, and Peter says, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Titus talks about that. Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us, Christ being given for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Verse 14, but even, Peter says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, here's another form of blessing. You are blessed. Don't fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. So the turning the cheek, the returning evil for good, I'm sorry, returning good for evil, extending a blessing to those who persecute us. I don't know, loved ones, I don't know all the ins and outs of that. And with God's help, we prayerfully unpack that. I don't know what that means fully when it comes to every realm of self-defense. 
I don't know what that means, okay? I mean, there's just a lot of scenarios in life where we can wrestle through that and God help us do that. But there's a great propensity, if we're going to trust the Lord in this way, to be fearful. Do not fear their intimidation, he says, and do not be troubled. Because even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, again, that being following Christ, being clothed in Christ's righteousness, Peter says you're blessed. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. Instead, set apart, verse 15, set apart Christ as king, as Lord, as ruler in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we have this call in verse 8 towards living in humility and living in respect and living in love with one another, specifically in the church, and that would flow to our neighbors or our friends and our work associates. We have this call to turn away from evil, to turn away from wickedness, to turn away from deceit and lying to do good, to seek peace, because God's eyes are inclined, his ears are open to his children, but his face is against those who, by their very essence, are evildoers, who are not in Christ. He speaks of being zealous. Who's going to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer, even if it comes for your righteousness, you're in a blessed condition. Don't fear, don't be troubled. Instead, set apart Christ as Lord, as King in your control center of your life. What moves and programs and dictates everything that you do, your heart. Always be ready to make a defense. Apologia, apologetics. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope. Account for the hope. Now, let's talk about hope really quick. Hope is not a willy-nilly wish. I hope, I'm not up on sports. I hope he didn't leave already. I hope Aaron Rodgers doesn't leave the Packers. Okay, That's just willy-nilly, like, I hope my workday is not stressful tomorrow. I hope, whatever, you fill in your blank. Hope in the Bible is this confident expectation. It's a confident expectation. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Be ready to make a defense, an apologetic defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for this hope, this confident expectation that we have within us as followers of Christ. And we're going to do this with gentleness, and we're going to do this with reverence. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Be ready to make a defense for this confident expectation that we have, yet with gentleness and reverence. Be prepared to share your faith with any and all. This source of our hope. How must we share our hope? With gentleness and with reverence. Now, a meaningful quote that stuck with me over the years was said by Pastor John Piper in his sermon, Don't Waste Your Life. And he said, do you ever wonder why, I'm paraphrasing by the way, do you ever wonder why more people don't ask you to give an account for the hope that's in you? You ever wonder why? And then he said these challenging words. He said, maybe it's because it looks like we're hoping in the same things that they hope in. You ever wonder why people don't ask you more about the hope that's in you? Maybe it's because it looks like you're hoping in the same things that they're hoping in. 
So the trajectory of First Peter, loved ones, is compelling me. God, help us. God, help me understand how are we supposed to live right here, right now. For you all, Escanaba, surrounding areas, for us up in the middle, central UP, how are we supposed to live right here, right now, in a way that shows the watching world that we're different? This is tricky. Look at my family, right? I have a nice wife, nice kids, nice house, nice truck, nice suburban. Fear. We, we receive these things. I'm not begrudging those things. I don't wish to be living in a shack. I'm not saying that. But sometimes it's hard to say, God, how can we be different? Because in and of itself, I'm afraid that if people that just drive by my house and look over the fences at my house, I'm afraid they look at me. I'm just a nice person that goes to church on Sunday. God, help us. And I don't know the answers to that, loved ones. But it's a call to us. Dear Brother Piper, it's a call to us. Our hope must be different. Our lives must be different. God, help us. Verse 16. Peter says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And I think what he's mainly driving at here is that as our conscience informs us of sin, we are to confess that sin. We are to turn away from that sin. As the word of God comes to us, convicts our consciences, turn away. In general, it's talking about a lifestyle of obedient living, walking in God's ways, being receptive to the spirit and our conscience as it relates to our sin. Keeping a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who are going to revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better, verse 17, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And here Peter comes back again. We've been here three or four times in these chapters. Don't suffer for being a sinner. Don't suffer for being a fool. If you're going to suffer, followers of Christ, suffer for righteousness. Suffer for walking in God's ways. And keep your conduct honorable, your conscience clear, so that if you're slandered, Ultimately, those who are reviling your good conduct are going to be put to shame in the end. Because it's better if God should will it so. And as a parenthesis, notice this, loved ones. Who's in charge? Who's ultimately in charge of our suffering as followers of Christ? If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, we know we know, a small parenthesis related to suffering, we know that within God's original plan of creation, death, suffering, disease, all of those things, sin, weren't part of that as far as how he created the universe. Some people are going to pin all of that back to the fall. You know, like everything we're suffering is all because of the fall. We screwed it up. It's all because of us. And there's, that's true. But to say that God is disconnected from our suffering is very not true. How he paints and makes beautiful and perfect all of these things is ultimately probably not going to be fully understood until we're with him. And maybe not even then. But we do know very clearly this text is one of those things. It's better if God should will it so. Will what? Will what? That we suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what is wrong. Verse number 18 for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in spirit. Brother John MacArthur said this, related to verse 18. This is another statement of the sinlessness of Jesus and of his substitutionary and vicarious atonement. He, who personally never sinned and had no sin nature, took the place of sinners. In so doing, Christ satisfied God's just penalty for sin required by the law and opened the way to God for all who repentantly believe. I love that phrase. Repentantly believe. 
One more time. This is another statement of the sinlessness of Jesus and of his substitutionary and vicarious atonement. He who personally never sinned and had no sin nature took the place of sinners. In so doing, Christ satisfied God's just penalty for sin required by the law and opened the way to God for all who repentantly believe. Notice, Christ died for sins once for all. That's why he said, it's finished. It was forever totally paid in full. The just one, Christ, for the unjust, us, so that he, Jesus, might bring us to the Father, to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He died for sins, one time for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Interesting, look at 2 Corinthians 5.20, because as we are called in this text, ambassadors of Christ, or as Peter told us earlier, giving the hope that we have within us, When the text says Christ brought us to God, that is very much the same thing that we're compelled to do as believers. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, to repentantly believe. Because He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, to sum up, to us, brothers and sisters, all of us, verse number eight, are to sing in harmony together not talking about our voices, but as we live with one another harmoniously. All of us are to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to show sympathy to one another. All of us, we are family, are to show brotherly love, brotherly affection. All of us are to show kindness from within, kindness that is genuine, and all of us are to show and display humility because God is very much opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are we to exchange evil for evil? Absolutely not. Are we to exchange insult for insult? No way. Are we to give blessings through our words and deeds? Absolutely We're called to bless so that we may be blessed because the one who's going to desire life or to love and see good days, keep our tongues from evil, our lips from speaking deceit. We must turn away from evil. And notice the word of God never leaves us there. It never says, don't do this. Stagnantly, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. The word of God always compels us, stop doing this and replace it with doing this. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. Because God's eyes, God's affections, God's ears are open, available to your prayers, to my prayers. But God's face, his face is turned away from those who do evil. And a hymn that describes these things beautifully is this one, which I think you know. We, we, we just reviewed, we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves. His robes for mine, oh, wonderful exchange. Being clothed in my sin, Jesus Christ suffered beneath God's Rage, the cup of God's wrath poured out on him. Draped in his righteousness, I am declared not guilty. In Christ, I live, for in my place he died. His his robes exchanged for mine. 
I'm clothed in his righteousness. He is clothed in my sin. What cause have I for dread? Because God's daunting law that none of us can keep, Christ mastered. He mastered it in my stead, in place of me. Therefore, faultless, I stand with righteous works that are not my own. I'm saved by my Lord's vicarious in my place, death and life. His robes exchanged for mine. God's very justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed and the Father is pleased. Christ took that wrath-filled cup and drank it. And then he cried, it's done. Sin's wage is forever paid. And propitiation, that sacrifice, that payment has won, has overcome And his robes for mine, such anguish that Christ endured, none can know. Christ, God's very beloved son, was condemned as though his foe. And think about this, loved ones. You remember where it says, the face of the Lord is against? Oh, what did Jesus experience on the cross? That is what he experienced on the cross. God's beloved was condemned as though his foe. He in my place accursed and left alone. And I in his place embraced and welcomed home. And the call of the good news, loved ones, that if you know Christ, you rejoice in. The call of the good news, if you don't know Christ, that you must believe is this, We must cling to Christ and we must marvel at the cost, at the payment that he gave for us. Jesus was forsaken. God was actually estranged from God. The face of the Lord was turned away from the Son. And in turn, we have been bought by such love. Our lives are not our own. Therefore, Our praise, our very all, our being shall be for Christ alone. We say, who owns us? Jesus owns us. Who redeemed us? Jesus redeemed us. Who calls us to lay aside ourselves and worship and follow him alone? Christ. If you don't know Christ this morning, cling to him. The father literally turned from the son on the cross because Jesus was receiving his cup of wrath in the place of us. And the call of the gospel is that we would cling to that rescue, that we repentantly believe in Jesus Christ who alone can rescue us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for rescuing and redeeming and sending Christ to offer freedom and his righteousness to all who will believe. May it be so this morning, Father. May you open the eyes of any among us who don't yet know Christ, that they would repentantly believe, turn from themselves and trust in Christ alone to rescue them from their sin, for only he can. Only Jesus took your wrath in full. Only Jesus was victorious over the grave. Only Christ is seated at your right hand. Thank you, Father, for letting us review truths, challenges, commands, admonitions that in very true and real ways are very much impossible. And we are completely dependent as your people on the enabling grace that alone you give us. We want to trust you, Father, that with the command will come the enablement. Change our speech, Father. Change our mouths 
And ultimately, you do that as you change our control centers, Father. So change who we are at the core so that we'll live and speak in a way that honors you, Father. As we unpack what it means to return good for evil and what it means to give a blessing instead of a curse, in spite of a curse, Please help us, Father. How does it look? How ought we to be the people who don't look like we're hoping in the same thing that our neighbors are hoping in? God, help us. Change us, grip us, grow us. And I ask that we'd be able to do that together. That we'd be able to admonish one another and build each other up, even this morning after the service, so that we could grow and we could be the people of God that you've called us to be. I ask, Father, for every believer here that you would aggressively allow us to have opportunity to share the hope that we have in you with another non-believer this week. That you would give us wisdom and boldness and aggressiveness to ask questions and seek to be your disciples, your followers who make disciples, who share with others. I ask that you'd help us with these things, Father, that you would enable us, that your spirit would convict us where conviction is due and needed, and that you'd allow us to grow into the beautiful and the pure bride that you desire us to be, for Christ's sake, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.